2: That music is uh, somewhat emblematic of the theme of our show today. This is our Monday Scramble. But everything we're talking about today in some way or another hinges on memory. Uh, And um, you can make the argument that that much of our public discourse hinges on memory anyway. Uh, But today we'll be talking about the appeal uh, of the uh, murder conviction of Adnan Syed. Uh, who is, of course, featured on the podcast serial? This is in connection with the murder of Hayman Lee and then, as we go from there, as we transition from there uh, we 're going to talk to Maria Konakova, one of our favorite writers uh, who who has a very very a much read and circulated piece in The New Yorker right now about the fallibility and fungibility of uh, of memory and also about the the pure and weird and almost quantum mechanics of memory. And then towards the end, we'll be talking uh, to Russell Berman from The Atlantic uh, about the revival of uh, the Harper Lee manuscript, which also um, hinges on, on what is remembered and the way things are remembered and the way things are forgotten, including the the claim by Harper Lee herself that she had forgotten the existence of this manuscript. But uh, we decided to go uh, quickly first here because our first guest uh, has a limited amount of time. Uh, Rabia Chaudhry joins us, lawyer and national security fellow at the New America Foundation. Uh, she's the person who brought the case uh, of Adan Sayed to the attention of radio producer Sarah Koenig, who produced the first season uh, of the podcast Serial, which is uh, about the case. So first of all, uh, Rabia Chaudhry, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for your time.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me.
2: So, uh, in your own words, uh, tell us what this latest legal development is in this case. It, it's a it's a rather unusual one, given the the timeline of the jurisprudence in this case, right?
0: It is. It's unusual, um, not just because of the timeline, but just in generally, it's very difficult to get a chance for a new appeal, and that's really what it was. We lost the post conviction appeal about a year ago. That's when um, it was denied. And uh, almost immediately, his attorney had filed for the opportunity to just file a new post conviction. You have to get um, you have to get permission from the court, and this was them granting that permission. So it doesn't happen very often, and it also happened very very quickly, which is also unusual.
2: So what happens from here? What are the steps uh, that, that follow?
0: Uh, what happens next is that you know it's uh, we get another shot at the same claims that were raised in the earlier post conviction. So we get to go back. In front of judges and argue that um, uh, that uh, his attorney was ineffective, and raised the same issues about Asian claim and plea deal.
2: So, um, and you know,
0: if we if we win on that level, he could get a new trial.
2: Yeah. So just to sort of uh, help people understand this, then, so uh, I mean, the 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 spear point of this appeal is an in, uh, in, an ineffective counsel claim, right? That that his his uh, attorney at the time of the trials was was ineffective.
0: Yeah, that is that's the basis of the. Um, Post conviction,
2: yep. And so, and then the arguments within that uber argument are that there was a key witness who was simply never pursued or investigated, despite the fact that she volunteered herself. That's Asia McLean. Uh, and, right. and, and then the whole question of the plea deal. So, r- really quickly, because I know your time is limited, sketch out the Asia McLean part of this. This is somebody who claims she can place the defendant in a place that he shouldn't be, according to the prosecution's timeline.
0: Right. So they're basically, you know, um, the, the prosecution argued that um, the victim Heyman was killed right after school, around 2.30, maybe up to 3. Um, and uh, after Adnan was arrested, like literally in the two days following his arrest, Asian Quay is a student at the school who wrote him letters saying, I remember the day she disappeared. I was with you at the library. All this you know, stuff happened. Now, Adnan was not aware of the state's timeline at the time. He didn't know exactly when Heyman had been killed or what the state's case was because he had just been arrested. He gave those letters to his attorney. And the attorney came back to him and said, "Well, Asia's, you know, story did not check out. You know, maybe she had her dates wrong or something. She just kind of blew it off." He brought it up a number of times, but they always there was just basically a response that no, it just it's not. You know, her statements aren't useful to us now. After he was convicted, I went and I that's when I first learned about her. I went to speak to her, and she's like, nobody ever contacted me. She's like, I she tried to talk to uh, his attorney. She's like, I you know I had written to him a couple of times. He's like. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not useful. So she basically, uh, you know, has said for 15 years, that, and I got an affidavit from her then, uh, she's like, you know, she, she, his attorney never even attempted to reach her. Forget investigate the alibi witness, but never attempted to reach her. And she still maintains that she was with him right after school at the exact time that the prosecution is saying that the victim was murdered.
2: Um, now, the one of the other points that will be made uh, as part of this appeal is this whole question of a plea deal. Quickly uh, sketch, sketch that out for us.
0: Well, the plea deal in relation to the ineffective assistance is that, you know, as the the date of the trial was getting closer, um, Adnan was becoming aware. I mean, he, he was incarcerated, first of all, but he was becoming aware that he really wasn't able to place himself throughout the day. Uh, you know, he had to be able to provide himself alibis and nothing, you know, Asia apparently had not checked out, according to his lawyer. He had given his attorney his um, email um, login stuff to say, can you just check my email to see when I logged in and out that day? And he – so he was unable to establish, like, this, you know, any kind of, like, alibi. So he, he talked to his attorney and said, can you tell me if the state is offering a plea in this case? Because he had no priors, and he also was advised by many other inmates to just at least check it out. So Gutierrez um, came back to him, and this happened twice, and said that they're not offering a plea. So this is two occasions – and, and uh, the state admits, the state actually concedes that Gutierrez never even approached them. And that is her duty. If the client's asking, she has to at least approach the state. So that's two occasions when Adnan specifically requested her to do something. Not only she didn't, did she not do it, but then she lied about it.
2: Um, this is a, a hard thing to do, hard to look into the mind of the Court of Special Appeals uh, in the state of Maryland. But, but it, it does seem almost impossible that this, the podcast serial didn't have some influence on this. Is there, is there anything anybody can know or say about this?
0: I mean I don't like you said it would be pure speculation but I do think it might you know, there might be a couple of factors at play here. One um in terms of how rapidly it's happened. One that, you know, they are getting slammed with like, media requests and other people trying to figure out what's happening in the case. So maybe they're thinking if we dispense with it quicker, you know, it's off their plate. The second thing I, I think also is that the supplement that was filed recently to Adnan's petition, um includes the allegation um that uh, the lead prosecutor in the last post conviction actually lied under oath, and I think you know when something like that happens that's like a major i mean it it literally undermines the integrity of the entire proceeding, and maybe that's something that moved them to realize that this is like kind of serious and they have to they have to get to it quicker but i it's that's just speculation I don't know, but we are i am very surprised i think we're all very surprised.
3: Um,
2: last question, because I know you have to go. You're at a conference right now. Um, one yeah. of the things that became clear in in serial is just the difficulty of piecing together memories from 1999. It's a long right. time ago. So as you as you imagine moving forward, uh, I guess you'll get the hearing on this in in, in June. And, and then, you know, if you're successful, get a new trial. But the new trial it would seem to me faces the same kinds of hurdles that Sarah Koenig faced, which is, you, you know, how how can you reconstruct reliable memories from such a distance.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you know, in, first of all, we have to remember in any given trial when some the defendant is presumed innocent, right? I mean, it, it might not be a reality, but he's presumed innocent. The state is the one that has to prove to the prove the case that, you know, this is how it was done, this is when it was done, that we have evidence to that extent. Um, the the two pieces of evidence they used was Jay Wiles, um, you know, an eyewitness, um, you know, an eyewitness, basically. But he's changed his story so many times. Not only that, but he actually, after the podcast ended, gave an interview in which he admits that he committed perjury on the stand. He said, it didn't happen like that at all. I lied in court. And, you know, he gave a whole other rendition of his story. So I think basically he's kind of useless to the state if they have to go back. The second piece of evidence they used to corroborate Jay's statements, which don't help anymore, is um, the cell phone tower evidence, which also was the first case in Maryland to use such evidence and in the interim has been shown to be extremely flaky and unreliable and did not even show the prosecution was purporting it to show. So I don't think the state has anything to go back on. If we were to be remanded for a new trial, I really do think the state would offer him a plea mm. for Rob, time service.
2: Well, that's great. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that, from your point of view anyway, that's great. I have to be an impartial journalist, yeah, yeah. even though I was yeah. a fan of the show. Ravi Chaudhary, I know your time is limited. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. I had a
2: great time. Okay. Bye-bye. So we're going to transition over to Maria Konnikova. As we do this, and Maria Konnikova's current piece is called You Have No Idea What Happened, which could apply to Brian Williams or to Adnan Syed and and the murder of Heyman Lee or to a bunch of other things. But maybe even to set Maria up, let's hear one of the opening parts of the, the podcast serial in which Sarah Koenig asked people to try to remember something at a distance.
1: Now imagine you have to account for a day that happened six weeks back because that's the situation in the story I'm working on, in which a bunch of teenagers had to recall a day six weeks earlier. And it was 1999, so they had to do it without the benefit of texts or Facebook or Instagram. Just for a lark, I asked some teenagers to try it. Do you remember what you did on that Friday? No. Th- uh,
2: not, not, not at all. Oh, I can't remember anything.
1: <laughs> Wait, nothing?
2: No, I can't remember anything that far back. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I was in school. I think. No?
1: That's Tyler. He's 18. I asked my nephew, Sam. He's 18, too.
0: Not a clue. Uh, in school, probably. I would be in school. Um, actually, I think I worked that day. No, Yeah, I worked that day, and I went to school. That was about it.
1: Actually, on second thought?
0: I don't think I went to school that day.
1: You don't think you year. went?
0: Yeah, no, I didn't. I definitely didn't.
1: Here's Sam's friend, Elliot. He seemed to have better recall
0: actually i may have gone to the movies that night later
1: do you remember what you now saw that i'm
0: thinking i'm sorry yeah i think i saw
1: 22 jump street okay and what did you go with friends yes yeah.
0: i went with sam and kid sean carter a bunch of
1: people wait you sam my my nephew sam yeah yeah oh okay so sam says he was at work oh then
0: it wasn't that night then
1: all right.
2: All of this is of great interest to Maria Konnikova. She's a contributor to the com, where she writes a weekly blog focusing on psychology and science. Uh, one of her previous books was about Sherlock Holmes, so she knows a lot about trying to solve um, mysteries and crimes. Um, but Maria Konnikova, even hearing that and, and hearing the conversation that, uh, that, that I was having with Rabia Chaudhry, one of the things that we know is that the more, there, more science, the more research, that is directed at memory, the more we begin to see it, much less as some kind of linear monorail stretching back into the past, and the more we see it as this almost, you know, highly disorganized library system full of clerks, some of whom are, are half drunk uh, as, they, as they run around stuffing things in filing cabinets, pulling them out and, and refocusing uh, what has been remembered in the past. I mean, the idea that that memory is intact and reliable seems to be kind of on the firing line these days.
4: That's absolutely right, Colin. Um, the more we learn, the more we realize that you really can't trust memory for almost anything. Now, I wasn't at all surprised to hear those uh, recollections from serial because on any given day, unless something really significant happens around which your memory can coalesce, your mind isn't going to store that because it's really not important. Why does it matter to you to recall the details of every single day in the past? So unless there's a reason to do that, and more often than not, there isn't, it just kind of blurs together into your routine what you do every single day. And so you can't really, say, separate Monday from Tuesday from Wednesday.
2: So, but one of the things that you looked at, you looked at the, sort of the research that that crops up around uh, a very familiar statement. People will say, "I'll always remember where I was when I heard the JFK had been shot." If you're a member of my generation, mm-hmm. or when the Challenger blew up, or when 9/11 happened, or you pick something like that. So that's the alternative, something that's absolutely seared in your memory. And so, the, and the research does indicate that that's the case, although it doesn't really indicate that I would therefore know what color sweatshirt I was wearing on that day or what route I took to work or what I had for for lunch,
0: right?
4: That's absolutely right. So what you're describing is known as flashbulb memory. And it, the concept has been around since the 19th century. Um, William James called it a scar on your memory. And it's that sense that you know something happened and you know exactly where you were, what you were doing, what was happening. But We now know that flashbulb memories, despite our confidence, aren't all that accurate. So we usually remember two things um, about what happened. We do remember where we were, so location seems to be pretty central, and we also remember the order in which something happened. So in one of the famous studies um, of flashbulb memories where people were asked about the Challenger explosion, you can normally say, oh, you know, first I heard about it, then I did this, or maybe first the Challenger exploded, then this newscast came up. You're not going to get those major details wrong, but the, everything else, who you were with, how exactly you found out, you know, all of those details that you think are exactly accurate may even be worse than they are for a normal, everyday, non flashbulb memory, because you have such tunnel vision on that main event that you forget everything around it, and you start distorting it, and every time you revisit the memory, you distort it even further.
2: Um. The uh, the whole conversation reminds me of the opening paragraphs of Wally Lamb's novel, She's Come Undone, in which the narrator remembers the delivery of the family's first TV set in 1956. She remembers the delivery men, their uniforms, the box, the way they carried it crab-like sideways up the steps. And then uh, she, or Wally, writes, Here's the undependable part in my visual memory. My visual memory stubbornly insists that these men are President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon. Um, so and, and that 's another part of it too the um, The clarity and certainty which we attach to memory isn't a particularly good guide to the actual reliability of that memory.
4: That's absolutely true when it comes to emotional events. When it comes to everyday events, like if I for some reason remember that yesterday, you know, well, yesterday is, is a bad example, but say two weeks ago, um, you asked me what I was doing Wednesday, and I can say, actually, I know exactly what I was doing. I was with a friend of mine. We had lunch, and the reason I remember is because I spilled salad dressing over my favorite blue shirt. There you go. That, I'm probably accurate because it's not a particularly emotional event. I just happen to remember it for some other reason. So in moments like that, confidence and accuracy actually go together. So then when they don't go together, in these flashbulb memories, we trust our confidence when we really, really shouldn't.
2: Uh, We're talking to Maria Konicova. We're going to take a quick quick break right now. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the almost quantum nature with which um, in some research people kind of sharpen their memories uh, about things once they've got an emotional reason to do it. I don't know if I explained that very well, but I know that Maria will. I believe that is the Science of Skinny manuscript that's set 20 years after the original Science of Skinny, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, I am 100% sure that Maria Konnikova is with us right now. She uh, writes about psychology and science for The New Yorker. Uh, she's working on a new book. Are we Konnikovians permitted to know what the next book is about?
4: Sure. It's called The Confidence Game, and it's about con artists.
2: Ooh, we can't wait. Um, I, 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 what's that Joe Mantegna movie that's so great about, about con men? Um, the
4: House of Games. The House of Games. Yeah. Where um, he's, he says, David Mamet loves con artists.
2: Right, exactly. And he says, uh, Remember, I always offer you something first.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, all right. So, uh, But we're not talking about right that, that right now. We're talking about memory. So this morning, I was asked by the other person in my house, who. Uh, was annie lennox 's original partner in the eurythmics for some reason or other I knew it was dave stewart i haven 't even checked that but i 'm pretty sure i 'm right so um so in 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 the um Research that you looked at, let's sort of imagine a related scenario. Let's imagine that um, I, that you were studying me and you wanted me to try to remember, uh, first of all, a whole bunch of songs by the Eurythmics and maybe some other songs from that era. And then you wanted me to remember the name of names of the two principals in the Eurythmics, Annie Lennox, and I'm pretty sure Dave Stewart. And, but at that point, you administered a shock to me. Um, uh, one of the things that was, f- I, I'm so upset that you would do such a thing to me, but anyway, um, one of the things that you found, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that in subsequent efforts to get me to retrieve that information, not only would I be able to retrieve the the, the Dave Stewart information when you shocked me, but I would also, even if that other information about the early career, or the Eurythmics, related information, if that had, even if that had been imparted to me considerably before the Dave Stewart information in time, I would still have some better retrieval of it, right?
4: That's absolutely right. This is one of the most interesting new findings in memory. It actually just came out this month um, from the lab of Liz Phelps and Lila Devachi at New York University. And this is the first time ever that we show that emotional memories can actually retroactively enhance other memories so they did the exact thing that that you accuse me of wanting to do which is giving you an electric shock when people saw certain images and what they found was that when they got a surprise memory test later on not only was the memory for those images enhanced but all related images that had been shown beforehand so their brain somehow realized wait this type of stuff is important let me go back in history and selectively enhance everything that's related. And if you think about it, that's actually a really, really adaptive thing for memory to do. So one of the examples that um, we spoke about with the researchers is imagine that you got – that you were bitten by a dog in a new neighborhood. And then suddenly you remember all of your encounters with dogs in that neighborhood. And that actually makes a lot of sense because now you want to know, well, should I avoid all those dogs rather than forgetting all the dogs that existed?
2: And when you say adaptive, I mean, uh, for example, I mean, if at a time when it really – you know, when the rubber was really hitting the road, uh, imagine, in, you know, that I'm living in the grasslands of Africa in the early hominid state, and one of my, you know, confreres eats some kind of berry and dies from it. Um, well, not only am I going to remember him and the berry and stuff like that, but it's really good if I have these filing assistants in my brain we are going, wow, we should really sharpen up everything we remember about berries people have eaten, which ones they've lived through, all that kind of stuff. And so you're saying that the brain... I mean, it seems kind of weird, too, that the brain can – it almost has like a little focus mechanism where it can focus on something that it didn't necessarily record with high precision to begin with.
4: That's absolutely right. And I think what was really interesting about this study is that it showed that the effect didn't happen right away. So if you gave them a surprise memory test immediately after the shocks, there was no retroactive enhancement. It needed at least six hours, so they tested people six hours later and 24 hours later as well and they found that then that memory um, enhancement happened so it's almost like it needs t- it needs time to consolidate so you need to kind of go back and check everything out and then your brain makes that important decision okay yes you know i think we should remember all similar berries so that we don't die in the future
2: and in- Uh, First of all, I was emailing to you earlier, and I was saying, you know, in some respects, this research suggests, as has been suggested on other occasions, that one of the earliest uh, and most acute brain researchers was Proust, because he's kind of talking about these things, right? He's talking about the marrying of different kinds of stimuli to various kinds of experiences, and then their ability to to facilitate very vivid retrieval.
4: That's absolutely right. And one of the things we know about memory is that Proust, you know, with that famous Madeleine on the opening pages. Um, is really dead on, because if we have a very strong emotion associated especially to a smell, um, there's new work that's being done all the time on just how powerful smell memories are, that we are able to retrieve them. But I'm going to challenge Proust on one thing. You know, he's writing fiction. If he were writing nonfiction, we don't actually know how accurate those events are, because we can despite the fact that he's confident and that the smell evokes the memories, we might see the same thing you know that we see with the Challenger explosion or with 9-11, that you st- seem to remember everything, but that the emotion might have clouded over. And, and in fiction, that's totally fine. But when we're doing things like in serial, relying on these memories for actual information to convict a person during a trial, it becomes very problematic.
2: Somebody just tweeted that Maria Konnikova challenged Proust. I'm sure somebody did that. I mean, I'm just assuming that's just the way the world works these days. So last area I want to get into before we run out of time. So one of the other things we know about memory now from the kinds of research that you cover is we've thought of memory for a long time as this kind of filing cabinet, and you go into the filing cabinet and you take out the memory uh, and you look at the memory. And maybe as you get older, you know, you don't remember things so well for, for whatever reasons. But some of the more recent research indicates that really what you remember remember when you remember something is, in fact, kind of the last snapshot you took of it when you remembered it the last time. Rather than remembering the primal-er text, uh, the experience that the memory is based on, we remember memories and which are remembering memories which are remembering memories.
4: That's absolutely right. The more we know about memory, the more we realize that it's not just This process of you encode a memory, then you consolidate that memory, you store that memory, and you retrieve that memory. That's what we used to think happened. But now we realize that that happens over and over again every single time you retrieve. So after you retrieve, you don't just put it back, then you re-encode reconsolidate, restore, and so on and on and on. And what happens is that instead of, you know, if you imagine it like a filing cabinet, as, you, as you're as you saying, the contents shift. You know, some things fall out of one file, you suddenly get something from another file in there, and you remain equally ac- uh, equally certain that you're accurate about your memory when really it's, it's shifting, it's changing, crucial details might be different. It's a really interesting phenomenon because it's very counterintuitive. You would think that something that you recall often, you'd remember it better, but it seems to be that the things that we retrieve most frequently might be the things that are the least kind of the, the least like reality than the memories that we only go back to, say, once in our lives.
2: I would just make a final observation here, which is that, you know, obviously the nation is somewhat convulsed right now by this Brian Williams story. And and it's possible that he... Photographed and rephotographed and rephotographed and rephotographed this memory of this incident that happened to him uh, years ago in Iraq, uh, and and that maybe one of the reasons for the error here is just simply that process. Although I think we we could both agree, not as scientists, Maria, but just as people, that the intention is important too. Like if every time I take the photograph out, I rephotograph it in, in a in the most flattering possible light, and and add, add a rocket whizzing by my head or something like that. I mean, there is some human agency here in the way that we we twist and distort memory.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why the fisherman's fish keeps getting bigger and bigger in every retelling.
2: Right, or as one athlete said, the older I get, the better I used to be. That's Uh, exactly right. Maria Konakova, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Colin.
2: All right. Maria Konnikova, she blogs uh, about science and psychology at The New Yorker. She's got an exciting new book about con men and con games and con women and con people. Uh, Then that's coming out uh, in the near future. Um, Now, coming up, we're going to take a little break for fundraising, uh, a short break. Then when we come back, we're going to talk about this new Harper Lee novel. We're going to give you maybe some details about it that you didn't know. But we also understand that... To Kill a Mockingbird is, boy, talk about an ur text. Talk about sort of a book that everybody read and 97% of people loved. Uh, We know that this is very meaningful to you, too. So give us a call, 860-275-7266, when we get that conversation going. 860-275-7266. Tell us what the new Harper Lee novel could mean or not mean to you.
4: a conversation about harper lee in the final installments of the mockingbird and mocking j books scout and katniss team up to fight evil today's show was produced by tucker ives and me Kyone wolf greg hill tweets for us at wnpr colin the part of bill curry was played by jeremy irons for show pages articles and videos of the faith middleton show staff remembering their zumba class with truman capote visit our website wnpr.org on tomorrow's show our political behavior is less rational than we want to believe it is And now, back to Colin.
2: Tomorrow is our show about what we call visceral voting, that notion that you think that you're making all these uh, astute and and conscious political choices when, in fact, a lot of research indicates that um, your decisions are are governed by emotion and by things even more limbic and reptilian than emotion, Uh, really close, uh, very quick kinds of judgments that you might make in the first 30 seconds of seeing a picture of somebody, something like that. So anyway— That sounds like a spoiler. I don't want to tell you too much. Uh, We do want to talk to you about Harper Lee. Uh, We've got uh, joining us to do that, uh, Russell Berman, Russell Berman, uh, associate editor at The Atlantic, where he normally covers politics, but last week was on the Harper Lee beat along with the rest of American journalism. Uh, And uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And I think, are you from this area
3: originally? Do I have that right? Yes, I'm actually, uh, I grew up in West Hartford. Uh, went to Hall High School, so... uh it's good to be on in Connecticut.
2: Yeah. No, we're eventually just going to assemble an entire show of you and Annie Lowry, and there are all these people in journalism that basically are from West Hartford. So, um, so, um, you, you did get put on the Harper Lee beat last week. And one of the things that you did manage to do, and, and this is a really controversial decision. This book means so much to so many different people. As I was saying earlier, by the way, if anybody wants to call in and talk about this, 860-275-7266. But this book means so much to so many different people. And Harper Lee is a woman uh, of 88 who has some pretty significant health problems. So there are myriad questions about how informed her consent has been to publish this this earlier man- manuscript uh, and and uh, you know to what degree she is a full participant in this decision that's one of the things that you were interested in in talking to the publisher of harper collins what did he tell you
3: right well i talked to to jonathan burnham uh, who is the publisher of the forthcoming book go set a watchman and he you know, from from his perspective from what he's heard and remember, it's important to note that he had not talked to, uh, nor anybody at Harper had uh, had talked to Harper Lee during this process. They had gone through her lawyer and her literary agent. But from what was reported back to him, he said Harper Lee was very much engaged uh, in this process, and it was not, you know, a, a circumstance where, uh, you know, she is not well enough to make a decision and that, and that they pressured her or made a decision for her. And that's, you know, and that's what he said. And he offered some... Uh, you know some more details than what was uh, originally put out uh, to support that in terms of Harper Lee's reaction and the fact that she wanted she, she you know thought that this manuscript was lost for the last 50 or so years and so she was very surprised that uh, it had been found uh, he described her as a very uh, self-critical writer and so she was she wanted uh, some of her close confidants to read the manuscript and determine whether it was uh, publishable in in the form. And, and they told her that it was, quote, eminently publishable in his words.
2: You know, this is a very difficult story to report on for a variety of reasons. But for example, today we're being told that Harper Lee is is. Um, mortified and troubled and hurt and humiliated that there are there that there is reporting that question her le- questions her level of participation in this her ability to participate in a meaningful way in it uh, and and that uh, she's obviously first of all she's kind of a famously reclusive person but on top of that I mean it's very painful for her to hear that uh, that that maybe she's not compos mentis or at least fully physically able to to be part of this whole process the problem is it's always coming from the same one or two places. The person telling us now this is Harper Lee's lawyer, whom you mentioned before, lawyer and friend Tanya Carter, right? Everything comes through these people.
3: Right. And so it becomes a matter of trust. And of course, there have been a couple of legal disputes uh, in the last couple of years where, uh, you know, Harper Lee's lawyer, Tanya Carter, has been, uh, you, know, you know, some people in that community who had been close to Harper Lee have told, you know, reporters there that, you know, Tanya Carter was sort of preventing them from coming to see her. And there was all those kind of concerns. And, and I think this is also something that you get. You know, people make assumptions about uh, people that are, you know, elderly. And, you know, in her case, she's had a stroke. But nobody really knows except for her and the people who see her on a day-to-day basis um, what the real truth is. So it's, it just becomes a matter of trust.
2: I mean, it had been suggested by her sister, her highly protective um, older sister who died I think at the age of 103 not too long ago but but the information that, that Harper Lee had had a stroke and that the stroke had a- affected both her vision and her hearing I mean we don't really know exactly to what degree in each case but to a certain degree she's, she's hearing impaired and sight impaired I mean and I think even the most rosy scenarios now suggest that although she reads she has to have special magnified extra extra large print uh, thing, almost bespoke editions for her uh, to be able to read but, but it, it seems important somehow that this whole thing is happening. I mean, if Truman Capote or Harper Lee had written this story and, and it happened that this manuscript, this long forgotten manuscript was discovered so soon after the death of, of the, the protective and al- almost curatorial older sister. I mean, that, would, that does naturally raise a whole bunch of
3: questions sure although if you look at it another way you know harper lee is 88 years old and if she is in poor health obviously uh the publisher you know the the people who, who have an interest in this would you know might not have to wait uh you know more than uh you know several years to be able to publish this um you know, after her death, she has been quoted by even her close friends who, who are skeptical of this as saying that she, you know, might have published something uh, posthum- posthumously. And, and people who were – it was not widely known that this manuscript existed, but people who have come into contact with her over the years uh, were uh, – many of them seemed to be aware that she had written something else.
2: So um, explain to us how this was found that once again, it is this woman, uh, this Tanya Carter, the lawyer and friend who essentially found this. How did how was it
3: found? So what um, I was told by by Jonathan Burnham is that Tanya Carter was was in uh, the essentially the Harper Lee archive. He wouldn't be too specific exactly as to the location, but it was in Monroeville, uh, near where she is now living. Uh, he she Tanya Carter was um, looking for the original transcript for uh, manuscript. I'm sorry for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and found um, as she was leafing through it that there were scenes in it uh, or at the end of it that that you know, were not from the book. And so the more she looked, she realized this was an entirely different novel that was affixed to the end of the manuscript of uh to kill a mockingbird. And uh she brought it you know back. She told uh, Harper Lee about it. We've learned from other reports that Harper Lee was very surprised to hear this. Um and from what, you know, Jonathan Burnham said then then uh you know she had um she had some close friends and, and people around her Uh, read the manuscript. They told her it was definitely publishable, and and that was when the decision was made, and they entered into the the agreement to publish it, and it'll come out uh, in July.
2: So I mean, one of the many things about this that's difficult to process, and and you know, w- this entire sh- episode that we've been doing has focused in one way or another on memory. Memory in the in the case uh, that uh, the murder case that 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 made up the the serial podcast, um, which is now um, subject to a new appeal in Maryland. Uh, memory in the case of Brian Williams. Memory in research. So we have memory uh, in play here. I mean, one of the things that you kind of trip over when you read about this is the notion that Harper Lee had. Forgotten some aspect of this, she'd either she'd forgotten that this manuscript still existed somehow. She was surprised to find that Tanya Carter could find it, and and, and yes, yeah, she's 88 years old. She's had a stroke. There's a lot of explanations for this. Although you know, this really is this would. It, it, I mean, she made one trip to the plate and hit a 700 foot home run in Yankee Stadium. That's To Kill a Mockingbird, one maybe the most popular American novel of all time. It just seems to me if you'd made one other trip to the plate you'd remember it. I mean, I, I'm struggling with that a little bit. I don't, I don't know what you can do to help me there.
3: Well, from what, from what I understand, it wasn't, she, she very much remembered writing it, but she assumed that it had been lost because essentially, remember that this was essentially the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. She submitted this, to her editor back when she was, you know, uh, you know, nobody, she was a young writer who had had no accomplishments. Uh, and her editor read it. It had, uh, you know, Scout uh, was an adult in it, and there was only flashbacks to her childhood in Alabama, which was, of course, became the uh, subject of To Kill a Mockingbird. And her editor said, Scout's childhood is what you want to focus on. Go back and rewrite this. And that's what became To Kill a Mockingbird. And so when we when we think about, well, you know, her decision to only publish and only write one book over the course of her life and, and wanting To Kill a Mockingbird to be her contribution to literature, um, it is interesting that, you know, why after all these years would she, des- you know, decide to publish the first draft of it, which was not thoroughly, you know, edited by professionals um, and, you know, candidly, might just not be as good, and it might change the, uh, uh, you know, what, what her legacy is uh, a little bit, at least, in, in literature.
2: Um, Russell Berman, one thing you did ask uh, the, the publisher of this book uh, is, what's it about? Obviously, we don't want too many spoilers, mm-hmm. uh, and, nor were you offered many, but you, you do have kind of a sense, anyway, what uh, Ghost set a Watchman is about.
3: Right. So, the uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird*, as, as many people were, will recall, took place in the Great Depression uh, in the 1930s when Scout uh, Finch was 12 years old. *Go Set a Watchman* takes place about 20 years later in the 1950s, uh, as the Civil Rights Movement is is ramping up. She has been working as an adult in New York City, and she comes back to Alabama to her hometown. Uh, and uh, you know, then there's the, what the publisher uh, told me was. Uh, you know sort of um, didn 't as he said didn 't give away you know, anything, but goes back to the town where she was born and revisits old friends and family and sort of encounters old ghosts and comes up against new ideas and opinion opinions it 's a complicated very adult novel novel that sweeps in family politics, love the south uh, is what his description of it was, so obviously that 's a somewhat promotional. Uh, in nature, but you get a little bit of a flavor for it.
2: Does it. sound a little bit like jacket copy, doesn't it? Well, um, you know, wh- you know, we, when we think about why is this such an incredibly primal book? I mean, I, I really do believe that if you, you know, were to uh, pull, you know, five hundred thousand Americans uh, on the on their favorite book of all time, uh, I, I think To maybe that's been done. I think To Kill a Mockingbird would would place high, if not at number one. It's just a book that everybody reads at some point. Everybody loves. One reason everybody reads it is, you know, if for a lot of us, it's our our first encounter, or one of our first encounter with, to use an adjective you just used, somewhat darker materials. Right? We're sort of seeing, you know, the the evil of that era. We're seeing fundamental kind of kinds of an unfairness. We're seeing menace directed at children, which is, you know, something maybe we're shielded from from a little bit growing up. And and it sounds as though this new book. I mean, one wonders, you know, what kind of place it will take in in school curriculums. But it sounds like this this new book. I, I don't know whether it's darker, or less dark. I, I I know you did ask Jonathan Burnham about that.
3: Right, because To Kill a Mockingbird, one reason that it's so universally loved and read is that it's read in schools. Just about every school child in in America reads this book at some point or another. And so I asked him when he said, following up on when he said it was a very adult novel, is this going to be suitable for children just as To Kill a Mockingbird was? And he said it's not going to be quite as accessible because uh, it's not told from the point of view of a child. That was one reason why. Um, so many people can relate to the scout is she is the narrator and she's twelve years old. Um but when she and so the, the Gosetta Watchman is from the point of view of a young, you know, adult woman. And so obviously it's going to be different there. But he did say he, he thinks it could be uh read in schools. It was not something that had, you know, too much violence or too much sex or anything like that.
2: Of course. He is the publisher, so he probably hopes right, that's true right. too. Right, Again,
3: take take that with a, a grain of
2: salt. All right, uh, Russell Berman, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back, at least uh, telephonically, to your old haunts of, of West Hartford. Uh, Russell Berman, associate editor at the Atlantic, joining us today to talk about the story of Harper Lee's second, but really, in some senses, first book. Uh, very quickly, here uh, we have a minute or two left. We're gonna there's, you're gonna hear a little tiny bit of fundraising uh, here at the end of this. I do urge you, particularly if the show this show is important to you, uh, to be generous to may, maybe make that call particularly if you've never donated before just because obviously the fundraising that occurs during our time slot We'll get a certain amount of credit for that, so it 's actually meaningful that we get it, uh, so anyway, but you nice people will be coming on to talk to you about that. Um, I also want to thank everybody who helped out today it 's a snowy day it was hard to get in here, but people did. Kyone Wolf walked over in her yak tracks and uh, took arrives uh, came from east of the river and Katie Tularski, our executive producer, manned the phones. I can see her there in her signature Orange hat straight out of the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I guess those are red, right? Those are red hats, I think. Oh, well, never mind. All right. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about visceral voting. Thanks for listening today.